0: Hello, and welcome to this series on the Ancestors of the Book of Genesis. You can find this series and others online at onefellowshipumc.org and on the One Fellowship Church podcast. Visit us online to learn more about our congregation and the work that we do in Waco, Texas. Thank you, and enjoy. All right, my friends, Uh, welcome, welcome, and welcome. We are here Wednesday evening, 6.30 p.m., for our One Fellowship United Methodist Church. Uh, Bible study via Facebook live. Uh, So I just want to say thank you so much for uh, tuning in, for joining us as we continue to practice social distancing. And uh, currently we are sheltering in place here in Waco. So my friends, without further ado, uh, let us open in prayer. And Lord, we just want to ask right now for protection upon our friends, family, and neighbors. We want to ask for Health, Lord, in this moment, we want to ask that whenever we sit down to reflect and whenever we sit down in front of these texts to reflect, that you will open up new insights, not just into ways in which the text can breathe life into who we are today, but also into how we can live it out in the world around us. Ultimately, we want to be windows through which the world can look to see your love living and active in this world today. It is in the name of Jesus that we pray these things. Amen. All right, friends. So, the last study that we went through was in the book of Genesis. And we went through Genesis chapter 1 through 11, looking at some of those really early stories, uh, which fantastic um, etiologies that sort of explain different things about the world that we live in and the ways in which the world comes to be the world that we know. And one of the fascinating things about the book of Genesis, uh, it's a collection of stories that talk about sort of the beginnings or the origins. One of the fascinating things is that Genesis is broken into these two sections. On the one hand, we have what's sometimes called the primeval history, Genesis one through 11, the chapters that we looked at uh, earlier in this year. And in those chapters, we get, you know, the stories of creation in Genesis one and two. But then we also get uh, these four stories of different generations in, in the development of humanity and humanity's relationship with the world. So we get the story of Adam and Eve. We get the story of Cain and Abel in Genesis chapter 4. We get the story of, of the flood and the generation of the flood. And then we get the story of the Tower of Babel. And what's fascinating is that the primeval history, Genesis 1 through 11, has a story of sort of four generations as this world unfolds. And in some respects, that structure parallels what we see in the entire rest of the book, Genesis 12 through 50, even though there's so many more chapters. Once again, these chapters unfold over the course of four generations of the ancestors. They're sometimes referred to as these ancestor cycles. So we get the stories of Abraham and Sarah in Genesis 12 through 25. We get the stories of Rebecca and Isaac in Genesis 24 and, and in Genesis 26. And then we get the stories of, of Jacob and Joseph um, in the remainder of the book of Genesis, these four generations. And so in some respects, the premium history, Genesis one through 11, parallels the structuring of Genesis 12 through 50. And of course, in, in scattered throughout each of these, we get these, these fantastic tales, uh, the, the genealogies. And I know our tendency is to sometimes unceremoniously skip over the genealogies, the names. But those names are actually really important. In fact, uh, we get genealogy statements five times in Genesis 1 through 11. We get genealogy statements five times in the subsequent chapters, beginning with chapter 11, verse 27. And so, my friends, what I want to do in this study is look at some of these ancestors, some of the characters, the, the ways in which the stories around their lives are told, and some of the implications that can have for us today. And so we'll start today with the fantastic story of the calling of uh, Abraham, or Abram, as we find him in Genesis chapter 12. So I'm going to go ahead and pull up the text here. And in Genesis chapter 12, this is where we get this, this great story of the calling of Abram, or of Abram, as we find him here. If you'll read with me in 12 verses 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And the truth, my friends, is that there's, there's a remarkable amount of depth In here that we could unpack. This initial calling of Abram gets echoed throughout subsequent texts, not just in the story of Abram, but in the stories of each of the subsequent generations. We see echoes of this sort of calling, this formation of a relationship growing uh, in Genesis 15 and in Genesis 17. If we get some time, we we may get there this evening. But what I find so fascinating looking at this text is that it actually opens with a bit of attention, almost. There, there's a problem with the way the world works here. The Lord's calling Abram. Now, we know from the Bible study that uh, from, from you know, the many studies that we've done that names oftentimes have really important meaning inside of the text. Names often carry significance that echoes throughout the way stories are told. And so here we have a character introduced Whose name is Abram, exalted father, but there is a problem with Abram. The exalted father has no children. And so the question is can the exalted father really be an exalted father? Already, there's something not right with the world that we're in. There is something that's going to drive the plot as we move forward. The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I must admit, my friends, in, in the ancient world, especially when, when you don't have uh, sort of children of your own, setting out away from your family can be uh, a, remarkable, difficult, a remarkably difficult thing to do, especially in the ancient world, the way that uh, kinship networks um, Kind of, the way that they, that they worked, that they functioned. <laughs> this fundamental tension is actually going to drive so much of a story in the rest of Genesis. It opens with an exalted father that has no children. And yet part of this blessing is, I will make of you a great nation. God's saying, I will do this for you. And we see this echoed throughout so much of the text later on, whether it's Genesis 15 or Genesis 17, coming back to uh, the idea that God has made, has formed this, this relationship uh, with his family and um, has issued these promises to this family. And what we continually find is the promise that God makes is in jeopardy in some way in so many of these stories. And in each time, there's only one character that can really protect the promise, and that's God. Each time there's only one character that can uh, see the promises through that have been made and ultimately that's God. Each time there's only one character that can fulfill the promises that he makes. And that's God. And I suspect in there somewhere that there's a remarkably powerful lesson for us. It's a lot of people I want to be able to put my trust in. But I also know No matter how good-hearted people are, no matter how genuine people are, they do let us down eventually. Even the ones that we love and care about and remain close to. And one of the things we see in the Bible is such a stark contrast between people and God. God keeps his promises. God keeps God's promises. And we see the language of, of this idea of a promise all throughout the rest of the book of Genesis. You know, you think about here where um, God calls Abram to leave, uh, leave your country, leave your kindred, leave your father's house to a place that I will show you. And we get that language showing up again, like in the story of uh, Jacob, for example, when uh, Jacob goes off and then he's called to return in Genesis 31 uh, to the land of your ancestors, to your kindred and uh, to the land of your birth. We get this language echoing throughout. I know there's this this great old rabbinic story. Can I tell y'all an old rabbinic story? (laughs) Well, I guess since I'm on a video, I'll tell an old rabbinic story anyways. There's this great old rabbinic story about Abraham. Uh, It's in Genesis Rabbah, chapter 38. And one of the fascinating parts about this story is this story also shows up in Islamic tradition. One of the things I love about the old rabbinic stories is oftentimes you get various versions of them uh, uh, across the ancient world. Um, and even across faiths. And so there's, there's this question that was commonly asked, why is it that Abraham's the one who's called? Like, was there something special about him? What's, what about Abraham, uh, stood out that he receives this kind of calling? And so there's this, uh, famous story about when Abraham was a child and, uh, the story says that his father was an idol maker. So his father makes idols. Um, and it says that one day, uh. Abraham's father, Terah, leaves Abram in charge of the store, the idol store. And this man walks in and comes up to Abram, the, the kid who's at the uh, the desk, and says that he'd like to buy an idol. And so Abraham asks him, he recognizes this man is, uh, let us say, a seasoned life veteran. And he says uh, to the man, well, you know, how old are you? And the man responds, I am 50 years old. And so Abraham says... If you're 50 years old, then why would you want to worship a statue that was made one day ago? And so at this point, the man leaves. And so later in the story, a woman walks into the store. And she wants to make an offering to one of the idols. So Abram, uh, after the woman leaves, Abram takes a stick and he starts to smash all of the idols. He he just breaks them all up, uh, smashing up his father's store. And then he takes the stick and he puts it in the hand of the largest idol. And so when his father comes home, his father just finds the store, just smashed to bits. And his father's like, what did you do? I left you alone for only a short amount of time. How did this happen? And you'd be surprised how often I say that when I leave my son alone. Anyways, never mind. I digress. <laughs> he returns and, he a- and Tara asks Abram, what happened? How did my entire store get wrecked? And Abram said, oh, well, you know, what? Uh, woman came in to make an offering to one of the idols and the idols all started arguing over who was going to, uh, eat of it first. And so the largest idol took a stick and just smashed all the others. And Abram responded or and terror responded and said, Abram, come on, you know, that the, you know, that those, uh, those statues of stone did no such thing. And Abram said, so why do we worship them? And so as this, as the story goes on, Terah brings Abram to Nimrod and uh, Nimrod says to Abram, oh, well, we should worship fire. And Abram says, yeah, but fire is not all that powerful because water can put out fire. And then Nimrod said, well, then why not worship the water? And Abram said, well, even the clouds can hold water. So Nimrod said, well, then worship the clouds. And Abram said, well, the wind pushes the clouds around. And so Nimrod said, well, then worship the wind. And Abram responded that even people can withstand the wind. And the idea is that none of these forces of nature, no matter how powerful they may be, are limitless in their power. They all have constraints on them. And as the story goes on, what we find is that there's only one in this world that has unlimited power. There's only one in this world that is sovereign over all things. There's only one God. And that comes back to that initial point. Who is it that's going to see this promise through in the end? Ultimately, it's going to have to be God. In fact, many times throughout the remaining stories, when we find uh, the ancestors trying to take matters into their own hands, it doesn't always end up so well. So, fun story about, uh, fun old rabbinic story about Abram. appealing to the eye Um, the temptation was eat it and you can be like God and when we look in uh, Genesis chapter 4 with the story of Cain and Abel you know a story of Cain uh, killing his brother Abel taking a life who's the giver of life in this story God's the giver of life so Cain is taking something that God gave When we look at like the Tower of Babel story also, you know, it talks about them wanting to build a a tower up into the heavens. I mean, it's not just that they're trying to make a great name for themselves, uh, that they're exalting their own name. But in in, in the text, it, it, it literally makes it sound like they're trying to storm the heavens, trying to build their way to heaven. And in each case, humanity is trying to take something into our own hands that we really don't have control of. In each case, we're trying to be a little bit like God in some way. You know, so Dwayne, when you say you see idols everywhere. Sometimes I think the idol I have to fight against the most is myself. Turning myself into an idol. Because ultimately when I start thinking about God, and God starts liking all the same things I like and disliking all the things I don't like. Who am I really worshiping there? We, we do see idols everywhere. Anyways, Dwayne, great, great comment. Let's let's keep going. Um, Genesis chapter 15. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid. I am. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. And I, I want to pause there for a second because even though I skipped over into Genesis chapter 15, remember the previous story here in uh, Genesis 14 was when Lot gets kidnapped. There's this war that breaks out in the ancient world. Uh, Lot, Abraham's, uh, or Abram's nephew gets kidnapped. So Abram takes, uh, takes these men, goes, um, and rescues Lot essentially, has sort of a successful military campaign, we could almost say. And one of the things that happens here after, um, One of the things that happens here after Abraham is victorious in this battle is first he encounters this character named Melchizedek, a priest of God Most High. And Melchizedek says this blessing. He says, blessed be Abram Abram by God Most High, maker of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High who has delivered your enemies into your hands. And that word delivered him again. Sounds a lot like that word when God shows up just a few verses later and says, I will be your shield. The word for shield, magen. There's this word play. In one, Melchizedek says, okay, God's the one who delivers your enemies into your hand, magen. And then God shows up just a f- few vas- verses later and says, remember, I am your magen, your shield. There's this word play there that connects the stories together. <laughs> okay, so we keep reading. I am your shield, your reward will be very great. Well, wait, remember at the end of the previous chapter, the king of Sodom offers Abram this reward, right? The king of Sodom says to Abram, um, says to Abram, you know, take all of the goods for yourself. And Abram says to, to the king of Sodom, he says, I- I've sworn to the Lord God, most high maker of heaven and earth that I'm not going to take anything that belongs to you. And so Abram is offered all these riches in the end of uh, chapter 14. He says, no, they're not mine to take. And then here, very, just a few verses later, God shows up and says, I'm going to be your shield and your reward will be great. These stories are so intertwined. Let's keep reading. <coughs> but the word of the Lord came to him. This, uh, this is in, um, this is, oh, sorry, let me go to verse 2 got ahead of myself. But Abram said, Oh Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue to be childless. Remember what the driving crisis is uh, in, in the plot of Genesis. God shows up and makes this promise. And all the re- in all the rest of the stories, the promise is continually being threatened by something or another. There, there is something in the way the story is told that makes us think, wait, is it possible that this, that this promise will not come true? And in each time, who's the one that has to see the promise through? Who is the one who actually has the sovereignty over the situation to ensure that this promise comes true? Every time it's God. God keeps God's promises. So here in Genesis chapter 15, okay, God shows up to Abram in a vision. He says, don't be afraid. I'm your shield. Your reward will be great. And here's what Abram says. The first thing is, God, I still don't have... What you promised me. How many times do we pray that in our lives? We think we're doing something. We think something's coming. God, I still won't have it. I continue to be childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. <laughs> but the word of the Lord came to him. we we'll go into verse 4 here. But the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. No one but your very own... Uh, no one but your very own issue shall be your heir. And then God brings Abram outside here in verse, uh, in verse five, and he says, look toward heaven and count the stars. If you are able, count them. Then he said to him, so shall your descendants be. And he believed the Lord, and the Lord reckoned to him his righteousness. Uh, as I read through this, I find this fascinating that... Um, Abram says, Lord, I still continue to be childless. I still don't have a child. And what God shows him is so much bigger than a child. Imagine all the stars. You know, sometimes... Sometimes I'm just thinking too small. And sometimes I'm just looking too small. And sometimes I'm so busy looking at this small thing over here and saying, why don't I have this one small thing? And meanwhile, God's trying to get my attention to show me there's something so much bigger out there. When I look at this, it seems to me that God's understanding of that blessing was a lot bigger than what Abram was assuming. So, let's keep reading. There's this, uh, it leads into, the, the story leads into this really remarkable um narrative of this encounter between God and Abram then he said or then then the Lord said I am the Lord who brought you from Ur of the Chaldeans now pause for a second because we know that language right we know that language I'm the God who brought you out of this because we hear this all throughout the rest of Torah we hear this all throughout the rest of Torah when God needs to remind the children of Israel this is who I am I'm the God who has been there for you in the past And in fact, this phrase echoes all throughout the rest of the Hebrew Bible. So many times when we are tempted to not not believe God's promises for our future, In, in the Hebrew Bible, God reminds us when he was there for us in the past. I'm the God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, or here. I am the Lord who brought you up from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. Let's keep reading. But Abram said, and this is in verse 8, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? And so he said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these and cut them in two, laying each half over and against the other. But he did not cut the birds in two. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and a deep and terrifying darkness descended upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, know this for certain, that your offspring shall be aliens in a land that is not theirs, and shall be slaves there, and they shall be oppressed for 400 years but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterwards they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your ancestors in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And going on in the verse 17, we're going to finish out the chapter here. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. This, this is what we sometimes call a, a theophany, sort of this physical uh, manifestation or image almost that kind of represents the presence of God. And, and we can think of many places in the Bible where the presence of God is sort of visually represented in some way through this kind of fire and smoke imagery. We think about uh, Mount Sinai, for example. On that day the lord or uh, the let's let's look at verse seventeen, when the sun had gone down and it was dark, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, to your descendants, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river." the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Gerishites, and the Jebusites. It's this amazing story about this ritual in which Abram comes, he cuts the animals in half, lays them out, and, and, and the question we kind of ask is like, what is going on here? Uh, what, what is with cutting the animals? And And this is, or uh, what a lot of people suspect that this is part of sort of an ancient covenant-making custom in the ancient world. It was uh, the, the, the idea of a covenant. Oftentimes, when we think of a covenant, particularly in our modern world, we tend to assume that uh, it means a promise. And in covenants, as we see them in the Bible, promises oftentimes are connected with them. But that does not mean that a covenant is necessarily a promise in and within itself. You see a covenant in the ancient world was actually a treaty and it was a treaty that you would make between nations and in the ancient world, when nations are constantly rising against nations, empires rise and fall, the survival of, of your, of, of your kingdom, of your people oftentimes depended upon you being able to make very strategic treaties, very strategic alliances. And I find it fascinating that not just here in, the, or here in Genesis 15, not just in Genesis 17, but all throughout Torah, in a world where a kingdom's survival depends upon their ability to make strategic alliances, treaties with powerful nations, in the midst of that world, the children of Israel, here Abram, later we're going to get the, the children of Israel throughout the rest of Torah, are called to make their treaty with God. Different kingdoms, constantly making treaties with one another just to survive in the ancient world. And here, the people of God are supposed to have their treaty only with God. And so this custom, uh, we oftentimes think, reflected sort of a treaty-making custom. When um, God says that he's going to make a covenant here, the language for make a covenant uh, literally translates, I will cut a covenant. I will cut the covenant. We see that imagery of cutting here in this story. And we suspect that what this represents is this sense of um, when you pass between the cut-up animals, there's almost this sense of may I fulfill my end of the treaty or may I become cut up like these animals. And here's what I find interesting. In the ancient world, when you made treaties to survive, treaties were not made between kingdoms of equal power. That is to say, you always had a kingdom that had more power, that had a larger army, that could do more hurt in the world. And then usually you'd have a smaller kingdom. And depending on that power, that informed how the treaty was made. So for example, if you were a bigger kingdom, you could push other kingdoms in the treaties that were good for you. And if you were a smaller kingdom, you might not get as much of a say. When Babylon shows up at the gates And they say, hey, you should make a covenant with us. Well, Babylon has a much bigger army than us. And so, if we want to survive, maybe we should listen to them. Covenants were not made between powers or between parties with equal power. There's always one that has more power and always one that has less power. And usually, what it looks like is the smaller kingdom says, OK, I'm going to give you a portion of my crops, I'm going to send you tribute, I'm going to give you my gold, and you can use my army kind of whenever you want. And the more powerful kingdom says, OK, I'll take everything you have to offer, and I'll, I'll protect you if in the event you get attacked by someone. Usually, that, that was kind of how it worked. But oftentimes, the responsibility for fulfilling that treaty fell on the weaker party. They were responsible for holding up their end of the bargain year after year for sending their tribute, sending their gold, sending their food. In this story, who is the more powerful party? Clearly, it's God. In this story, who's the weaker party? Clearly, it's Abram. Yet in this story, who takes the responsibility of the covenant upon himself? In this story, who is it that actually passes through these cut up animals and and proclaims this covenant? It's God. I mean, in the ancient world, we would have expected Abram to go marching through there and saying, Hey, you just protect me and, and I'll do all these things for you. And if I don't, then, then may I be cut up like this. But here, it's God that takes the responsibility of fulfilling the covenant on himself. Where is Abram during all of this? Abram's asleep. God takes the full responsibility of fulfilling the covenant on God's self. God takes the full responsibility of seeing these promises through on God's self. And that's why in all of these stories that we see throughout the rest of the book of Genesis, even when these ancestors try to take matters into their own hands, who is it that ultimately has to see them through in the end? Every time it's God. Every time it's God. Let's keep reading. I've got one more passage that's, uh, that I want to look at here um, before we close because this, this covenant, this promised kind of language that's given to Abram shows up in actually three different places. Uh, we get it in Genesis 12, we get it in Genesis 15, but we get it again in Genesis 17. And it's fascinating that these stories are told in different ways each time. So when we flip over to Genesis 17, this, this is where we find yet another covenant between Abram and God, but this time Abram's getting, he's getting pretty old. Genesis 17 verse 1 says, When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me. Be blameless. And I will make my covenant between me and you, and will make you exceedingly numerous. And Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, As for me, this is my covenant with you. You shall be the ancestor of multitudes of nations. No longer shall your name be Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. And I want to pause for a moment and, you know, just recognize that God keeps showing up and saying, Hey, Abram, I'm going to fulfill this promise to you. Abram's 99 years old and he still hasn't seen the fulfillment of this promise. Think about that. Abram's 99 years old, and when God shows up, he's still saying, I will do this for you. (laughs) I want to look at Abram's response here in a second. Abram falls on his face, and uh, once again, God offers this, this covenant. And part of this covenant is a changing of names. And you know we, we've talked in this Bible study many times about the symbolic importance of names, the significance of names, because names have meaning uh, in, in these stories. And so we mentioned that in Genesis chapter 12, when a- Abram is first called, Abram means exalted father. But there's a problem. Abram doesn't have any children. And here he gets this name change. And so whenever you see a name change... Keep an eye out for the ways in which the character and the role of the character changes in the story. We get this when Jacob receives that name of uh, of Israel, for example, later on. (coughs) Your name shall now be Abraham. No longer exalted father, but now father of many peoples. And it goes on to explain the meaning of this name in the verse. For I have made you the ancestor of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make uh, nations, plural, of you, and kings, plural, shall come from you. I will establish my covenant between me and you, and your offspring after you throughout their generations, for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land where you are now an alien, all the land of Canaan for a perpetual holding, and I will be their God. And, and b- before we uh, look at sort of Abram's response here, once again, this restates this promise that God's making to Abram. But now it's stated in a slightly different way. You know, in, in Genesis 15, God promises Abram descendants And in Genesis 17, we get that same promise. And in Genesis 15, God promises uh, Abram the land. And we we get that again in Genesis 17. What's a little bit differently is that third part of the promise. In Genesis 15, remember, God promises that he will deliver, uh, that that he'll deliver the descendants of Abram from Egypt. They'll go down to Egypt, but I'm not going to forget about them there. And in Genesis 17, God promises that the descendants will be able to receive the covenant as their inheritance. It's, it's almost like in Genesis 15, God says, I'm not going to forget about your descendants. And in Genesis 17, God says, and your descendants will have something from me, the covenant. In both cases, though, we see the power of, of God's words and actions to echo throughout generations. And so many times, maybe this is a tendency of, of us in modern American society, maybe it's part of our sort of individualistic culture. I, I don't know what it is, but um, oftentimes I tend to think about my relationship with God as if that's an isolated silo. It doesn't And maybe, you know, I connect to the people to the left of me and to the right of me. But oftentimes I lose sight of the fact that when, when, I, try to, when, when I try to follow God's calling for my life, I become part of a story that started way before me and that will probably go on well after me. I become one part of a much larger story and I inherit something from those who came before me. And I also have a responsibility to pass something on to those who will come after me. This is one of the things that uh, you know, we're, we're dealing with now when we're looking at, at these public health advisories. Um, you know, the, this virus, uh, supposedly there, there are people who can pass on this virus without really feeling the full effects of it. But there are some individuals, you know, whether they're, uh, whether they're young or they're old, who are going to be more vulnerable to it. Which means that my actions, even if I'm a healthy person, even if I'm not in a high-risk population, I have to think about the implications of my actions for those who came before me and for those who will come after me. I'm reminded of this great old rabbinic story in which which, uh, an elderly man is planting a tree and the Caesar comes by and kind of makes fun of him. Why are you planting this tree? You'll never live long enough to eat off its fruits. And the man replied to the Caesar, yes, but I ate the fruits off the trees that were planted before I came. And so it's only right that I plant the trees for those who will come after me. A lot of our students now, <coughs> sadly, uh, many of our young people are going to have to forego their their graduation. And uh, you know, we've we've got students both in high school, college, wherever, who who have worked really hard. And, and graduation is is this this time when family and friends gather around, and we really celebrate the students and all of their accomplishments. And we we, you know, in some ways remind them of of how much they mean to us during this season. Oftentimes, we get these graduation speakers that talk about how. Uh, you know, this class, they, they can go on to change the world about how, um, how much potential they have and how much hope we can place in them as young people in order to solve some of the the challenges um, of our present day. But, you know, if we're going to keep telling our younger people those who are going to come after us, how much hope we place in them or their potential to uh, to do great things, maybe we should stop and think, What kind of world am I going to leave them? What can I do to leave them a world where they can fulfill all of their potential that I see in them right now and that I'm speaking to them in this celebratory moment? What can I change about the world that I'm going to leave them? From womb to tomb, we are all connected. So... In Genesis 17, God shows up. God speaks this promise to Abram once again. Abram is 99 years old. Abram has heard this promise multiple times now. And I want us to look at verse 17. Abram's response. Then Abram fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Can a child be born to a man who is 100 years old, can Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? You know, a lot of times, we, may, maybe it's just me. I've heard a lot of stories about when Sarah laughed at God. We remember when uh, the three visitors um, <clears throat> show up uh, with Abram, and they sort of speak again this promise of a child over him, and Sarah laughs. We don't always talk about Abram laughed also. Abram had his doubts also. Abram wasn't sure also. These ancestors, a lot of times, you know, we talk about uh, Abram. We don't always uh, we talk about Abram in a certain way. Sometimes we talk about Sarah in a different way, and we do that a lot of times. And I think we need to see how interconnected they are in this story. Sarah also receives a name change. She goes from Sarai to Sarah. Sarai meaning my princess or maybe like my noble woman. Sarah now meaning princess or noble woman. All throughout the story of Abram, we see continually. God showed up and made a promise to Abram. God is the one who took the responsibility to see that promise through. And there are times, even when Abram doubts, God is still going to see that promise through even when Abram tries to take things into his own hands, God is still going to see that promise through. And in some respects, that can be kind of encouraging. Because there are a lot of times when I try to take matters into my own hands and it doesn't always turn out well. There are a lot of times when I may feel like I don't live faithfully enough to be worthy of of a promise. There are a lot of times when I may doubt whether, whether or not things are going to go my way in this life. But at the end of the day, the fulfillment of this promise really doesn't depend upon my strengths or my weaknesses. At the end of the day, the fulfillment of this promise doesn't really depend upon uh, our seasons of um, doubt or our seasons of faithfulness. And let's be honest, we have seasons of both. Um, Our seasons when we are being our best selves, when, when uh, when we are really flourishing, and our seasons when we feel like we're just surviving. That promise doesn't change with, our, with the changing of the days. The promise doesn't change with the changing of the seasons. The God who makes the promise is the God who will see it through. And the God who made the promise is the one who is sovereign to see it through.